Hello and welcome to The Long Short, a new podcast brought to you by AIMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, focusing on the very latest insights on hedge funds and private credit. My name is Drew Nicholl. AIMA is the global representative for the alternative investment industry, with around 2,000 corporate members spread across 60 countries. Of these, our fund manager members account for approximately $2.5 trillion in hedge fund and private credit assets. Each weekly episode of The Long Short will examine topical areas of interest from across the alternative investment universe with news, views and analysis delivered by AIMA's global team, as well as a host of industry experts. So whether you are a hedge fund or private credit industry veteran, a student of the industry, or just someone interested in learning more about hedge funds and private credit, this podcast will be your ideal companion to help navigate you through the long and short of this fascinating industry. Welcome to episode 14 of The Long Short. And Drew, great to be back on the podcast again this week. Uh, what are you working on at AIMA these days? Yeah, always a pleasure, Tom. So we have just published the next edition of our Investor Intentions Report, which looks into how allocators are looking to position themselves uh, within the alternatives universe. And that report will be the subject of our next episode, uh, where we will be inviting Chris Brown of With Intelligence, who we partnered with on the report, to come in and dig into some of those headline data points. And there's lots of fascinating stuff in there, so certainly not one to miss. And then just looking further down the pipeline, we are also working on a report on emerging managers and how they are faring in the current market environment and how they are engaging with investors uh, when it, with respect to decentralized working and fee structures and, and everything in between. And uh, that will again be the subject of an episode towards the end of Q1. Okay, so it's looking like busy pipeline as always uh, within the AIMA research department. So it's great to see um, that new piece of work coming out and that will be available you know, on our website for you all to, to look at um, in due course. Um, and this week's episode um, saw us speak to Bill Kelly, who is the CEO and president of the Kaya Association, the leading global professional credentialing body dedicated to creating greater alignment, transparency, and knowledge for all investors with a specific emphasis on alternative investments. Bill is a self-described evangelist for alternative investment education since taking on the leadership role at Kaya in 2014. And in addition to his Kaya role, Bill is a tireless advocate for shareholder protection and investor education, and is currently the chairman and lead independent director for the Boston Partners Trust Company. And in addition, he is also an advisory board member of the Certified Investment Fund Director Institute, which strives to bring the highest levels of professionalism and governance to independent fund directors around the world. His career in institutional asset management space spans over 30 years, where he gained extensive managerial experience working a series of C-suite roles. So we do hope you enjoy the conversation. Bill Kelly, welcome to the Longshore podcast. It's terrific to be speaking with you today. Uh, great to be here, Tom, and uh, always a pleasure to see you. I wish you were real, but uh, thank you and thank you for your membership. So Bill, if we could have you start today's conversation by explaining who and what Kaya are, and indeed how you came to work at Kaya and your role as CEO and president of the Kaya Association. Yeah, a great place to start. And certainly, AIMA uh, uh, was there at ground zero. So, uh, so 2022 represents our 20th year as an association. 
And as hard as for me, it is for me to say it, I'm beginning my ninth year at Kaya. So, uh, so almost half the life of Kaya, I've had the, uh, the, the, the pleasure and the benefit of, of being the CEO of this great organization. But if I go back to the roots uh, in 2002, uh, it was AMA that came to uh, UMass Amherst, the Eisberg Business School and Tom Schneeweiss and said, hey, uh, the CFA credential's out there. It's a wholesome credential, uh, both then and today. But back then it did really cover just the traditional space and really geared toward the analyst. And as the story goes, uh, should we not have a credential that talks about uh, alternative investments and non-normal distributions and what that means from the allocator standpoint? And uh, it was a very good thesis. And out of that, Kai was born and uh, very humble beginnings. That first class, I think, had uh, 40 some odd uh, folks in it. Uh, I know many of them over the years. Keith Black, who's still with us, was working in the pension consultant space. He was in that first class. Uh, Alexander Inikin, who's uh, an emeritus uh, board member, also in that class. Mark Anson. So really uh, a who's who. But, but fast forward 20 years later, we now have about 6,000 people going through the program for all individuals working at uh, either asset managers, GPs, or uh, sovereign wealth funds on the asset allocator side and across that whole spectrum, and many service providers in the middle. But we have 12,000 members in over 100 different countries, and I feel we're just getting started. And I think some of those themes about the importance of our mission are gonna come out throughout this discussion today. Yeah, and indeed, I am proud to be a Kaya charter holder for several years now, having done um, my credentials back in 2008 so it's definitely something that i would advocate doing you know for both professionals across the alternative investment space as well as folks who are curious about learning more about the alternative investments industry um and, and on that then bill you know can you briefly elaborate on the benefits of being a kaya charter yeah, so uh, so I'm doing a new member orientation about an hour from now. So it's it's a question that's always top of mind because uh, we're delivering a service to individuals and hopefully to the industry. And and I think the, the ultimate hallmark of that service is professionalism. So I could talk to you and you know some of this, Tom, about some of the content we put out and some of the events we put on and the ability to use the marks. And that's all uh, well and good. But if you have to go after all the time you've invested in this credential, to constantly explain who Kai is, what our mission and purpose is, then you're saying, well, does anybody really care? So professionalism is an intangible, but I think it's such an important one, especially where we are uh, in this market. So if I think about the ultimate member benefit, it's to be part of a group that's looking to raise the specter and professionalism in a largely under misunderstood part of the market. And if you look at Global AUM, you know, I've seen various cuts of these numbers, but if I put it at around 100 trillion, uh, you could argue it's a different number than that. But no matter what your denominator is, if you put all to the numerator, it's only about 16% of the total pie, but it does represent almost 50% of the global revenues coming from this space. So everybody is interested in the space. You've got a 60-40 model that's stretched people moving toward alternatives to try to round that out with good or bad intentions. And then certainly the asset managers are thinking about diversifying their top line and moving to alts as well. So professionalism, education has got to be part of that. And back to your simple question, I think that's the ultimate member benefit that we can deliver, but it's like painting a bridge, we're never done. And we're thinking about the, the credential in terms of Kaya and, and its credential in the alternative investment space. What's the relationship between Kaya and the CFA? And I know that 
a CFA, uh, those who are qualified as CFA, you know, can also go on to do the CAIA, right? They, they can, and uh, I have tremendous respect for the CFA. I, I'm fortunate to have Mark Franklin, the CEO there, as a personal friend. We talk on a semi-regular basis about what's going on in the world and what it means for the end investor, and we're very much kindred spirits in that regard. And I think oftentimes, uh, if people kind of know the industry, they kind of know the CFA, and they kind of know CHI or the CFP or FRM, I, I think there's an expectation that we're competing with each other on some level. And I love when I get this question, especially when a reporter asks me, because I've got a great uh, comeback that I've used several times, which is I've got one competitor, it's ignorance. And the CFA as a credentialing body has been beating this drum since 1960. So why the hell would I not embrace them, which I do. But I look at it from the investor standpoint. And if I'm an expert on the 60-40 space, and I know about the DuPont model, the dividend discount model, and I understand how equities and, and tradable bonds work, but is that all the client should be thinking about? And, and are they interested in a whole host of inputs, not the least of which is alts? And I think there, Kaya can be a very good completion portfolio because if you think about it from the investor standpoint, well, the mindset often is, well, I've got this traditional portfolio, but how much should I have in alts? And I think that that should be more thought about as an output, not an input. And by that, I mean, investors should be looking across this entire risk premium spectrum. And, and myself as their advisor, RIA should say, tell me about your risk tolerance. Uh, tell me about the liability side of your balance sheet. And what are your goals and expectations? And then I can pull from all of these tools and put together the very best risk-adjusted portfolio that meets those end expectations. I think oftentimes that discussion is upside down. But I think if we can get professionals thinking about that one risk premium spectrum and, and all these tools to pull from and be educated that way, from that standpoint, Kaya, FRM in terms of risk profile, CFP in terms of what it means around financial planning, and Kaya all fit into that nest very comfortably, and all of us together are beating back ignorance. Yeah, and Kaya and CFA also have that, um, you know, the, the shared interests, I guess, in terms of ethics, right? And, you know, one who does the Kaya curriculum will be taking on all the ethics that you would do if you were taking on the CFA qualification. Yeah, and I think that's an important capstone to this part of the discussion, Tom, because uh, should there be six, eight, 10 different de definitions about how to be a good solid fiduciary or how to act in a very ethical way? And when the CFA uh, came along and Kaya came along many years later, we said, hey, you know what? You guys have it right. We're going to pull that in. And, and then I think the capstone around cooperation is we did that mapping exercise that you alluded to before. And, and we're not gonna stand on the principle that, hey, it's Kaya or die. We looked at the overlap of learning outcomes between the three levels of CFA and the level one of Kaya. And there was a significant amount of overlap if you just pull these pieces out. So we, we're saying to the CFA, come and complete your learning, but you don't have to duplicate what you already know, come right to the level two charter. And that's been a pretty effective program for us. And I think ultimately a pretty effective program for the end investor. And Bill, if I may, just to flip the, the conversation a little bit, uh, when AMA was working on its uh, report that came out late last year on talent management, we had a lot of conversations with representatives from uh, HR within hedge funds. And they very often described to us that as the industry matures and broadens, and they were looking to welcome new people into their firm who might be from a, a non-traditional financial background, that very often they were describing how they were using Kaya as, as somewhat of a bridge, an educational bridge to allow 
maybe a new quant who comes from a, an academic or you know physics background for example to get a, a very good grounding in the in the alt space is, is this something that you see continuing and accelerating and, and does that really not underscore Kaya's place in the industry as that bridge you know assuming this trend of, of non-traditional people enter the market sort of sideways so uh, there's there's a few uh, uh, trends going on there, and I think they're secular, not cyclical too. And you know, uh, this year is going to mark my 40th year of graduation from university. So I've been, and the vast majority of that time has been in this industry. And I would say those first 30 years were marked by sort of slow and gradual change. And, and if you fell asleep and woke up two years later, you were kind of good to go. I would say the last five to 10 and then coming five to 10, uh, if you fall asleep for five minutes, you're gonna get run over. And I think the point you're raising about a whole new set of entrants coming in and you could have a data scientist sitting next to the analyst and the data scientist is very adept at working with data sets and you run the risk that they're gonna torture that data until it says something they want it to say, they can overfit the crap out of it. And there's the poor analyst saying, well, you did this all in R and Python. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Uh, so it's an interesting uh, side note that Kaya created something called the FDP Institute, Financial Data Professional Institute, just about three years ago. And maybe similar to the question Tom asked me about uh, Ama and Kaya 20 years ago, we're saying, hey, there's a new set of engagement here, a new set of rules and a new set of talent coming in. And the purpose for FDP was to try to bridge that talent gap. So not to try to turn the analysts into a data scientist, but give them enough tools to understand what a data set is, how you work with it, how you can understand the basics of Python and R. So you have the courage and the knowledge to challenge the data scientists and hopefully together build a better investment process that's gonna de-risk that process for the end client. So, so I think, uh, Drew, we're at the very beginning stages of this. I think it brings not only uh, a greater talent and diversity of talent, but diversity of people too, which I think is a huge plus. And, and God knows our industry needs to do a much better job there too. And that FDP and qualification it, is something that you say is being underwritten by the Kaya Association, dedicated it, to the data scientists or those who are working in that field, yes? Yeah, so yeah, so as much as I, I want to go out with my boots on, Tom, but when FDP is 20 years old, I'll uh, be in my 80s, and uh, we'll see what uh, the story is there. But those early classes are a multiple of what Kaya was in those early years. So you're talking about 150 versus 40. And what's interesting in this current class, and Keith Black, who you know, is, has moved over to the FDP Institute on a full-time basis. So I'm, I'm looking for very good things to come of, of, of what is some very early gains. But this most recent class, the, the vast majority of these folks are coming from Seoul, South Korea. And we're not even 100% sure why. We have some insight, but, but maybe a broad observation is ground zero for a lot of this disruption and DeFi and FinTech innovation is coming out of Asia because they don't have the legacy banking systems, the legacy technology and the innovation that we're seeing there, I think is gonna eventually breach the moat of regulation in many developed markets like the US. And, uh, and we've gotta be thinking about that. And I know the SEC and, uh, uh, has been thinking about this, the stable coin discussions at the sovereign level. So there's a lot of interesting uh, themes coming out of that. But I think the FDP in education, just like Kaya, uh, just like the CFA, there's a place and a home for that. And I think we've got a very early start. I think this is going to be a meaningful contribution. 
And I definitely want to to ask you a little bit more about uh, Kaya's expansion into the the crypto space. Obviously, a, a hot topic. But but just before I do, I just wanted to go back to that that excellent image you gave of the 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 bridge that's never been done being painted. And just in the spirit of that, uh, I know Kaya has recently done a, a fairly significant overhaul to further reflect the uh, alternative space and and the blurring of public and private markets and, and the need for Kaya charter holders to have a, a strong foundation in private markets. Could you just talk us through a little bit about uh, the process that went on in, in making those changes to the curriculum and also why uh, why that happened now, given that, that, that the trend may have been happening slowly for the last few years? Yeah, so uh, maybe a, a cute little side story there, too. As a kid growing up, I remember this commercial. The commercials used to be on television uh, here in the U.S. and around the world. And it was uh, for a fellow who was selling a uh, hair restoration. And it was called the, the Hair Club for Men. And at the end of the commercial, he shows a picture of himself and he's bald. And he said, I'm not only the CEO, I'm a customer. That applies to me. I get up at 4.30 this morning to to begin and continue my studies for level two of the Kaya exam. So even at that, my ripe old age, I'm a Kaya candidate. So I could speak to that very clearly, not as Bill Kelly, the CEO of Kaya, but Bill Kelly, the level two candidate of Kaya. And I, uh, I should know more about this curriculum, perhaps I did, but you never know until you get into it. And I spoke to my colleague, John Bowman, and some of the folks in our curriculum team. And I didn't say this in, in a slanted way, but uh, I was blown away by the richness and the depth and the coverage of this content. And when you get to level two, as Tom knows, it used to be the core uh, and integrated topics, now called emerging topics. And there's uh, eight of those topics. And there's an essay question that's gonna be asked on one of those eight. And if you go down that list, it's a who's who about where we are and where we're going. It's an executive guide to AI, something on stable coins, something in there on, on blockchain, uh, sustainable investing uh, in the private equity space. And the list goes on. And this is augmented by a very rich curriculum. Uh, and even within there, one of the sections is completely dedicated to ESG and regulation. So it is, the coverage is awesome. And I think like any curriculum and anything in life, the moment it starts to stagnate, it starts to die. And I think for us, we're constantly seeking the input of not only academia, which in, in the early days was CISDM and, uh, and AMA starting kind of made great sense. We need the input from the most sophisticated allocators because the pace of change is happening such that some of the, the garden variety principles have not moved, but how they're being imp implemented, how they're being delivered and how it affects an investment process is changing very, very rapidly. And I think that our curriculum team as a candidate vantage point has done an excellent job. And you pick up on a point there around ESG and responsible investment. I know Kaya have uh, spoken up on this uh, a lot in recent years, and you alluded to it being um, uh, highlighted more in the curriculum. Do you have any plans to have a dedicated credential for it? I know that the CFA Institute have, have got something on ESG and responsible investment, but what's your thoughts around that? What are people telling you? you know, is that something you think that, might evolve over time into being a, another qualification or is there enough standalone credentials out there? Well, yeah, I, I think maybe I'll start with uh, getting back to ignorance, uh, Tom. I think uh, the benefit ignorance has is that the less it does, the stronger it gets and it really doesn't need a lot of resource. So, so there's plenty of opportunities and our goal is not to do a me too approach uh, in terms of a product 
or uh, or to just try to dive in for the sake of diving in. We're more focused on where the holes are. That gets back to why we did FTP as an example. But I think there is a, a role for Kaya to play when it comes to ESG. And when you think about solving for that, it's gonna require patient capital. And what are the vehicles for patient capital? Private equity, private debt, real estate, infrastructure. And if I'm locking my money up in a systematic manager, quote unquote, locking it up, this may be no gate. I could take it out on T plus whatever. And, and I want that manager to be maybe a bit more of a mercenary and just get the highest possible return, uh, not by any means, but maybe with a little bit of a less focus on ESG in the short term. Uh, and I'm certainly, there's another side to that, but if I think about locking my capital up seven to 10 years, you know, I'm investing in a real estate project and I'm not thinking about the impact. I could be finding myself sitting on top of a stranded asset five to seven years into this. So, so I think that that is what uh, the focus is going to be. That's what some of these core readings are. And one of the things we're working on, and you know, my colleague, Aaron Philback, we're working on a series of micro badges that are going to have a more specific focus. And the goal is to think about this whole democratization of product and more and more responsibilities being put on the RIA, who does not have the product on his or her shelf like BlackRock might have. So now the customer is more of a retail-based individual or mass affluent coming to the RIA and saying, hey, uh, I want to know something about XYZ. And that RIA may not be as equipped to know enough about uh, ESG more broadly speaking or climate more specifically uh, uh, speaking. So they're gonna have to go someplace else to find that product, but they have to be knowledgeable about how, how they're gonna sleuth that product out. So we're thinking this, there is a need for these micro badges. So if we come into this space, it's gonna be much more likely in that space and much more targeted. And I think it's hard to solve broadly speaking for ESG and maybe even hard solving for climate because are you solving for climate in a tradable strategy in a long-term strategy? Are you trying to get the attention of the regulator? Are you trying to get the attention of the asset owner, the asset manager? It is very complicated and we've got to find a way of making that orchestra play the right music. Aimer is pleased to announce the inaugural Cybertech Forum 2022, a half-day virtual event which will be taking place on Wednesday the 20th of April. Join us to gain insights into all cyber and technology related developments impacting the alternative management industry and critical themes in cyber risk and resilience. The half-day event will showcase an array of premium content. Topics will include the cyber and operational resilience regulatory landscape, technology due diligence, and new and emerging technologies up for discussion, as well as an opportunity for delegates to ask questions of the speakers. Register now to gain a greater insight into how technological advances are shaping the alternative investment industry, both today and in the coming years. To learn more, visit AIMA.org and navigate to the events pages. Bill, if I may, you've been, you've been the self-described evangelist for alternative investment education. And I know that you have passionately spoke about the retirement promise and the challenges around the retirement promise, um, you know, and the prospect of also broadening investor access to meet the individual retirement need. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that and your views around that for our listeners? Yeah, so uh, so I think this goes back uh, 40 years ago in the U.S., but maybe in the developed markets, it's not too dissimilar, where uh, quite by accident, there was a, a piece of legislation passed, and uh, there was this esoteric provision in there called the 401k, or that was the, 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 uh, the paragraph marking for it. 
And as the story goes, it was put in place to protect uh, the tax status of certain deferred compensation uh, uh, awards for upstate New York uh, Fortune 500 executives like Kodak and Corning. Uh, but then some smart actuary said, hey, I could take this and create this 401k uh, uh, paradigm. And, and off we went. And one day soon after that, corporate America woke up and said, wait a minute, I can get this whole responsibility off my balance sheet and I can create this 401k and maybe just throw a, a bit of a matching contribution at the individual. And if they run out of money or don't, that's on them. And I don't have to worry about it anymore. This is awesome. So off we went. And now you know, I look at my parents' generation, virtually everybody had a defined benefit plan. Now, uh, very few, if any, do other than maybe in the public pension plan space. And a lot of those uh, plans have some, some inherent challenges. Uh, so we've we've done uh, we've we've made this move, conscious or unconscious. Uh, the jury's still out as to whether or not this is going to make sense because the, the oldest baby boomer on the, I'm on the tail end of it is probably mid 70s, uh, maybe a little bit older than that. But even at that age, they could live another 15 years. And should they be taking equity risk when uh, they're in their 80s? Well, the short answer would be no. But are they going to go into bonds that uh, that nominally are returning maybe 150 basis points real underwater? Might as well stick it in the mattress. So I think that we've created a conundrum uh, here, and especially with the central banks coming out of COVID and coming out of the GFC, and it's not not all the blame is there. But longevity risk is alive and well. Investment risk is alive and well. And unless we're equipping these individuals to understand just those twin risks, and there, there are probably others we can talk about, it's not going to end so well. And when it doesn't end so well, and people are in their 70s, 80s running out of money, uh, they're going to come uh, to the sovereign and say, hey, you got to do something about this. So ultimately, us as individuals are going to be, be uh, the lender of last resort. And before this gets even more problematic, I think we have to shine a bright light on this and say, we've got to recognize the problems and the inherent flaws. We gave a very sophisticated undertaking to a big defined benefit plan, and they just moved it over here. And not only do we move it over there, initially, we said, you can only have access to public equity and public debt. And part of that is starting to change too, certainly in the US and around the world, and the regulators are freeing up uh, definitions of accredited investors. But again, I think education's lagging and that's going to be uh, a less than perfect outcome. I mean, you're hitting the nail on the head. We've got situation of, you know, the, the certainly that 60-40 model uh, looking at a lot more challenging um, period uh, compared to recent years. I mean, the, the forecasts for, for returns there are single to low digits. Um, you know, you've got an inflationary environment, certainly in the US and the UK as well, and not to mention the geopolitical issues as well that, you know, uh, we are being faced with the start of this year. So all of that points to fairly turbulent time for equity markets and bond markets as well. So there is, there is a need, I guess, to manage the portfolio better. Um, and alternative investments can bridge that gap, right? But it's how can you get investors access to alternative investments? And I know you've talked a lot about that in the past and the need to have people you know, be educated about what alternative investments can do for the portfolio. Well, I, maybe Tom was an intentional choice of words. You said a moment ago, can, as opposed to will or should. Exactly. And I think that, yeah, is, uh, that, that is a very good, important and, uh, qualifier uh, because I think the investors are thinking, well, you know what? Uh, 
my 60-40 best case uh, nominal real is going to be sub 5% and my spending expectations through the remaining years on earth. And if I want to leave anything to my kids are more like eight, uh, what am I going to do about it? And I think if there's an expectation on them or a, a willingness from the industry to say, hey, just come over here. I've got high, uh, I've got high yield uh, a private credit or higher yielding private credit. I got private equity. Uh, it's so much more complicated than that. And as, and as you know, as a Kaya member, and I'm, I'm uh, learning both as a practitioner and a, and a candidate now, manager selection matters hugely. And uh, my colleague, again, Aaron Philback, uh, he does a lot of our content right now. And he just published something I saw uh, just on uh, our website in Chronicles, I think it was uh, just yesterday. And I took a look at this, it was interesting. It talked about the, uh, the multiples of investment capital in the private equity space. And somebody did a study in this over many, many vintage years and they use frequent data and frequent obviously is a very good uh, data source. And he looked at uh, this multiple invested capital and how many times do you get two times your money back at the end of a 10 year investment process? And it's basically only at about one third of the time on average, you're gonna get two times your return back. And uh, so meaning uh, uh, the other uh, times, it's uh, in the vast majority of times, it's not the case. And if you say, well, I want two and a half times over 10 years, you're talking about less than 10% of the GPs are able to deliver that. And I'm not, I'm not even getting into fees on this uh, discussion. So to put that in maybe layman's terms, and this is where I think we fail to talk about this. I think the average investor would say, well, you're telling me I can get two or two and a half times my money? Well, first off, I say, well, only in the minority of the cases, you can. And if you want two and a half times, only one out of 10 are going to get that to you. But then I think one of the realities is, and, and I've become a whiz with the, uh, with this, the BA2 plus calculator, thanks to being a Kaya candidate. If you run those numbers on a present value basis, and if you gave me $100 today, Tom, and I said to you, thank you very much. I'm going to lock this up and you cannot touch it for 10 years. And at the end of 10 years, I'm going to give you $200 back. If you run that math, it's compounding at just over 7% a year. Uh, where's my illiquidity premium? And is that my expectation? And if I can't touch that money for seven years, uh, is that such a great investment? And if somebody is thinking, well, you know, five is not very good and I need eight, in order to get the eight, I need a lot of 12 to average that out. So I think we have to be very true about what private equity, uh, private debt, real estate infrastructure can and can't do. And, and I think one of the things we really have to give strong consideration to, and I'm not trying to turn a page yet, we'll probably get to this, Tom, but this whole concept of tokenization. And I think that is tomorrow's stock certificate that uh, you can have a security token that, that effectively represents ownership. And if I can find a way with you or Drew to trade an interest in Spotify, as an example, at series B or series C, where there's still a lot of value creation to be had, that could be pretty powerful. But if my access is gonna happen through a SPAC or very late in the process, or I can get it through a DPO when it goes public, which it did about a year or so ago, that's decidedly uninteresting to me. So, so we've got to think about not getting access to private equity. How, how can I get better access to equities when the value creation is happening in the first place? And, and that's very complicated. Nobody wants to uh, talk about that, but I think that's what we've got to be really focusing on if we want better outcomes for the investor. And it, it, it's, it's great you mentioned that because this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently. Uh, obviously, we just had the one-year anniversary of GameStop uh, which was obviously, uh, you know, caught fire, caught the media attention by storm a year ago. 
And what we're seeing on the tail end of that is, is really, you know, as a consequence of lockdowns and maybe people turning to day trading as a way to supplement their incomes, we now have a, a generation of people who have entered the stock market in their millions that, that might otherwise have not have. But where this changes from previous generations is that, you, you know, you may have a situation where someone buys a bond when their, their child is born or that that person the first shares they get are in the company they worked at. These days, you get a, we've got a generation of young people who have no concept of uh, something like wine or, or fine art being used as an asset class and maybe have never owned a share in a company, but are trading NFTs or are involved in the crypto space. And, and so in some ways, the next generation of, of day traders or you know, uh, the retail market are more comfortable in the alt space than in traditional markets. And, and that's that's fascinating from the point of view of, you know, raising awareness and, and, and opening a window into greater understanding of uh, the, the broad universe of alts. Do you, do you see this as, as an opportunity in that space? And as you say, it may well be the future anyway. Yeah, so there's a lot there, Drew, and I think it's it's maybe a little bit of a blessing, but with a with a very strong flash and yellow light. The blessing part is that I think the Robin Hoods and the GameStops and gamification and COVID have all conspired to get a lot of folks involved in this market that never naturally would have. And I think we should embrace that because I think that you got to be in the game to understand it. But then I do worry about the intersection of investing and gamification. And uh, I, I don't remember exactly what the fad was when I was growing up, but maybe it was a type of jeans or a sneakers or an eight track cassette that you were willing to pay up uh, for and that established sort of your street cred. Now street cred is happening in the metaverse. And if somebody wants to go and buy something uh, to dress up their avatar, because that's sort of their modern day of an eight track cassette uh, thing, I'm 100% fine with that and I totally get it. But the moment they start confusing that with investing, you've crossed a bit of a Rubicon and I, I think you gotta understand what that means. And, and two cases I'll cite. One is uh, just about uh, a year or so ago, I think it's about this time in, uh, in 21, there was an artist named Beeple uh, who's still alive. And uh, somebody created this, this big compilation of all his works and sold it uh, as an NFT through Sotheby's. And if you add up all the valuations, uh, and I think it was a big holder in Singapore, it came out to be somewhere around $69 million. And it was like, oh my God, the NFT has arrived. I use this as a punchline for a lot of public speaking I do. And if you go and look at Beeple, that value, that NFT is driven by a, a security token called B20. And if you look at the B20 security token in March of last year at the height of the $69 million trade, it was trading around $26, $27 a unit. If you go out and look at that today and any of your listeners can Google, and I think even if somebody listens to this a year from now, it's gonna be unchanged. That NFT is tracking it less than a buck. And it's been flatlined for the last, several quarters. So it, it peaked in March and it went straight down and has been submerged at 75 cents a token. Now, if I bought a piece of, of that because I wanted to brag about it and dress my avatar up with it, home run. But if I put 20% of my 401k in there, I'm screwed. Uh, so, so that's one point. And then secondly, and I, I, Tom, you probably saw my letter to my members. I referenced this. That, uh, the elephant in the room. 
Yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. Yes. Thank you. So, yeah. yeah. So my son, Will, got this Oculus headset for Christmas and he's saying, try it on, try it on. And I eventually did. And, and typical of when uh, old people take on new technology, I get so wrapped up in the realness of it that I fell over. I thought I had a concussion and uh, and went, had to rule that out. But, but it led to a whole discussion on this. And the other point I was going to raise is that in, in a metaverse called Sandbox, Somebody recently paid $650,000 for a virtual yacht. And as a former boat owner myself, as the old saying goes, the two best days in the boat owner's life is the day the boat owner buys the boat and the day he sells. 100% true for me as as a boat owner in the real world. So in the metaverse, no doubt that that person was very proud to write a $650,000 check. I just hope he doesn't get beepled on the back end when he finds that NFT is below water along with the savings and the virtual yacht that he purchased. Bill, you travel the world. You've, you know, you're just back from Miami, I gather. So you're getting the, the ear of institutional investors. What are they telling you regards the views and expectations that they want um, from alternative investment fund managers? What's on the top well, of your lips? Yeah, so I think it's, uh, you know, there's a bit ass spread to everything in life. And I think the expectations of the client and the realities of what the GP can deliver, I think we're seeing a a wider uh, spread there. And and that's natural. This risk on trade uh, probably started in the GFC, uh, was maybe starting to go away before COVID came, but then uh, more accommodation uh, came about globally. And and there's risk on trade is alive and well. And I think a lot of people point to... uh, to the public equity markets, but it's true in private equity, it's true in real estate and true in, in uh, residential real estate. It is amazing how, what houses are going for, which is shocking to me versus just uh, pre-COVID uh, where we were. So, so the risk on trade is alive and well. And I think we've got to always have and continue to have a realistic discussion about how we can bridge that divide and bridge those expectations. And we should never be in the business of selling product unless the investor fully understands what she or he is getting into. And I think that oftentimes we talk about product and packaging and spend less time talking about fit of purpose in a portfolio and potential outcomes and probabilities of those outcomes. And as you know, Tom, that investing is all about managing probabilities across a balance of expected uh, risk and return. It's no more complicated than that, but, but the execution can get very complicated. And I think we're at a point in the market where if you want to meet that return and maybe skinning down those liabilities, skinning down those expectations, and, and that's the period we're in. So there is no silver bullet, but I think we're in for uh, an interesting time. I think we're going to see some volatility, uh, and we have seen it thus far this year. January is not a very good month in the public uh, markets, but, uh, uh, but I think that discussion has to continue. And if I can, this has been a fascinating conversation, Bill, and, and thank you again for your time today. If I can hit you with one last uh, doozy of a question that we asked, um, we asked uh, um, ITN Productions, who did a, a program with us uh, last year, which looked at um, uh, raising awareness about the alternative investment industry, primarily around hedge funds and private credit. And we asked them, you know, what should the industry be doing uh, to improve its reputation, or how did they feel the reputation sat? You know, uh, when thinking about uh, popular media and how popular perception for the industry. So maybe I'll ask that question of you. From your perch, you know, at Kaya and, you know, from traveling across the globe and 
um, speaking to people at conferences and meeting with GPs and LPs. What is your sense of the reputation for the hedge fund industry? Um, and what do you think, if anything, that the industry needs to be doing to improve its reputation? Well, you know, I think I could look at that, Tom, through the lens of some recent proposed regulation here in the States. And uh, the SEC has been on securities lending and they've been on this uh, 4PF and, and certainly the comment letters are, are flying in. And, uh, and I think oftentimes, and this is maybe a commentary, not just on hedge funds, but maybe how the, the GP and the asset manager approach these things. And, and oftentimes you'll read these letters and they talk about administrative burdens or taking away my asymmetric edge or don't lump me in with those retail investors. I'm an institutional investor. And, and while maybe the legalese in the letter has to say that, uh, when the FT, as an example, picks that up and regurgitates, I mean, you think about how that sounds to the average reader, it sounds horrible. Uh, it's all about uh, self-protection. It's all about my bottom line. It's all about, uh, don't you understand how difficult my job is? And I know that's not the intent, but that's how it comes out. And it's interesting when I read some of these articles in the FT, you know, this may sound funny, but I, I learned more about reading the comments section because there you get a little right. bit more of a debate about the bid ask and there are the crazies in there, but there's always a few thoughtful people that are looking at both sides and that's interesting. So uh, we, uh, Kaya as an organization are coming out with a, a seminal paper called Portfolio for the Future. And we've got some excellent authors writing pieces of that, including the likes of uh, Ashby Monk who works with a lot of the endowments and foundations around the world. And Ann Simpson who just left uh, CalPERS who was responsible for the NG1X on mobile move. So it's gonna be an awesome piece. And I think what our industry lacks is a think-like character that's calling the industry out and saying, hey, I understand those arguments, but let's turn this around and look at it from the vantage point of the end investor, or more broadly speaking, the stakeholder. And let's begin the discussion there and walk it back. So our intention when this uh, portfolio for the future comes out is that, uh, I don't know if people will listen, but maybe Kaya could be that think-esque voice where if we send a copy of that report to every substantial and even medium-sized GP around the world and say, not only read this, but remember and understand what your responsibilities are. There's a client at the end of that pipe somewhere. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding for that. And Elizabeth Warren, probably a very smart person, never met her. She's my Senator in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Uh, when she was running for president, she introduced a piece of legislation called Stop the Wall Street Looting Act. And it was meant to rein in some of the practices of private equity. If you're gonna call somebody a name, make sure you at least get their business model right. If, if public equity is Wall Street, private equity is not. So even at the level of a very learned senator and a Harvard uh, professor, they don't understand our industry. So I think we've got to think about it through the lens of not so much our perch, but the, the perch of the end investor and play this tape back. And I think if we do that, it's not gonna make us perfect, but we need to make sure that we are telling our story and the purpose of our story and what it means to the end investor. And if we can't do that in a coherent manner, I think we should expect some rocks thrown at our head and some of them we're going to hit. Uh, and, uh, and that's just a fact. But I, but I, I think that uh, there are some very good and valid functions that the capital markets provide. And I think that that story remains largely misunderstood, largely uh, mistold. And I think our industry can and must do a better job because uh, I, I think that uh, hedge funds have, have served an excellent purpose. And I think broadly speaking in this risk on trade, if you've got an uncorrelated risk premium 
that's been to not match the returns of the equity market, of course, it's going to have had some difficulty probably over the last 10 years. And should the hedge fund be an alpha engine to some degree? Yes, but it should also provide me a little bit of diversification and protection on the downside. And I think they are by and large has done a very good job. But again, hedge funds have become a very complex industry. And I think many people look at it as an asset class and it's not even close to being that simple. And so, Bill, very finally, then, uh, this has been fascinating. And I completely agree with Tom. That it's been you know, great to hear your views on this and, and, and where Kyra is going. You've mentioned some initiatives that you're working on there and, and obviously a lot of homework for all of us there to, to read those when those reports come out. And, uh, and AIMA is working uh, on the next edition of its trustee series with Kaya, uh, in this case, looking at liquid alts. So, you know, again, uh, going back to that uh, democratization of the industry that we spoke about earlier. But, but finally, where should people go to learn more about Kaya and its mission to, to educate the world on alternatives? Well, it's, uh, so I think it's a good uh, capstone, Drew. So I never represent that we have uh, the market share. We do a lot jointly with AIM and some of these trustee papers, some of the things we've done in climate are just outstanding. So we take all comers and partnership has got to be part of it. But, but a lot of this research is ours, but many times it's written by our members, our friends, uh, uh, senior voices in the industry. And you can find that on uh, kaya.org, C-A-I-A.org. Uh, we have uh, this portfolio of the future, which is our new blog uh, convention, and that seminal report is going to be coming out. We have a, a monthly series called Chronicles, which is the best of, not behind the paywall. So we're really trying to democratize education at the same time. And, and I feel in that regard, uh, AMA has been a kindred spirit and a great uh, partner and contributor, and uh, look forward to more of that in the uh, years to come. Bill, continued success to you and the team at Kaya and We'll have to have you back on the podcast again very soon. And hopefully we'll see you in the flesh. I, I hope I hope all of the above is true. Thanks, Tom. Thanks. Take Bill. care, Bill. Thanks. Bye. The Long Short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. 